Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 157th edition of the show. I'm Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us. On the program today, I'm going to be featuring a conversation with Max Haven, who is the author of Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire. This book is layered, important. It connects the way a very specific uh, industrialized product, palm oil, speaks to legacies of colonialism and shapes also military equipment, including items like napalm and uh, dynamite. It shows how one item that was produced in the context of colonial empire and the presence of Western European colonial forces in West Africa came to be an integral part of a bunch of elements to colonial power or imperial power today, even looking to the ways that palm oil is an essential ingredient to prison food in the United States and a part of the broader prison industrial complex system. I won't get into all the details here in the intro, but it was really a pleasure to speak with Max. Um, The book is Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire. And I'll just read a brief uh, description of of the project. Um, It's in our food, our cosmetics, our fuel, and our bodies. Palm oil found in half of supermarket products has shaped our world. This book uncovers how the gears of capitalism are literally and metaphorically lubricated by this ubiquitous elixir. I'll let the conversation we had speak for itself. Um, This was recorded in Berlin at the beginning of the year, and it's a conversation with Max Haven uh, on his book, Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire. Uh, My name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in the Radical Imagination at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, although these days I spend a lot of time here in Berlin. Uh, This book is a bit of a departure from the work that I usually do. I've written about financialization, about the radical imagination and social movements, about art. Uh, And this book uh, I approached um, as part of a series that I edit for Pluto Press called Vagabonds, which are short, pithy, provocative little books. Uh, And I wanted to make a contribution to this series. But the impetus for the actual project to look at palm oil was teaching. Uh, Starting in about 2010, I got a job teaching at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax. And there I was tasked with teaching fine art students about capitalism. And uh, I was looking for one commodity within our current capitalist global system that I could unpack with them to see all of the connections to a history of imperialism and colonialism all the way up to the present sort of ecological crisis. And palm oil eventually became that commodity, and then I decided to write it up in a book. In the book, you visit so many uh, aspects of that history you're talking about, but maybe first, um, can you just describe um, maybe the first section of the book where you talk about uh, palm oil production and British colonialism in West Africa and maybe l- make a few links to the present because I think that although all these products have these global products of the market have like roots in colonial history, maybe a lot of people haven't thought about that background. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, my book opens with a scene uh, of the 1898 invasion by the British of the Kingdom of Benin, also known as the Edo Kingdom in what is today Nigeria. And that event is most famous worldwide because it was the source of what have come to be called the Benin Bronzes, which are a set of statues and ornaments uh, and ceremonial objects that now find their way into museum collections in the global north. Uh, and have had a very important role in Western art history. Uh, but the real reason that the British invaded the Edo Kingdom uh, was not actually to steal these incredible artistic treasures. It was to gain access to that kingdom's um, palm oil production capacity and to eliminate a rival uh, within the region for uh, Britain's, the British Empire's palm oil supremacy within global trade, is sort of in the late later part of the Industrial Revolution. Now, at that time, palm oil was not found in foods as it so often is today. It was found mostly in industrial uh, applications like um, engine grease, uh, or it was also found in some consumer products like soap and candles. Uh, but in a certain way, I wanted to start the story there with a scene of colonial violence and colonial violence undertaken by the British Empire in the interests of British capitalists and European capital more generally but also a scene where we begin to see the um, deracination or uprooting of palm oil from its indigenous uh, context, mm -hmm. which is, you know, palm oil has been used by West Africans for millennia uh, as a very important foodstuff, as a, something to anoint the skin, as a cosmetic product mm -hmm. uh, for ceremonial purposes, a very deeply embedded and complex relationship with this quite amazing plant and its products. And the way then that gets stolen, quite literally stolen from Africans and transformed into something closer to what we, how we find it today, which is this kind of bleached, deodorized, commodified, mass-produced, and globally exchanged commodity. So you talk about palm oil's use within the context of industrial machinery and also within the context of war. Um, I think that maybe we could just briefly uh, highlight that as aspect of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's not an over-exaggeration to say that the wheels of European modernity uh, were greased with palm oil. Um, palm oil in the 19th century, especially into the later part of the 19th century, afforded British capitalists and European capitalists an extremely cheap way to lubricate the um, steam engines and machines that were producing the commodities that we associate with the rise of capitalism. So on one level, we have this kind of secreted substance within the sort of syntax or of, of empire. And then the book also traces something that uh, many other historians of palm oil haven't looked at as, in as great detail, which is its use in the military and imperialist side of colonialism and racial capitalism at that time. So on one level, Europeans were very interested uh, in the development of a universal gun oil that could preserve munitions uh, in, in foreign theaters of colonial warfare, like jungles, where, you know, keeping weapons... Um, lubricated and preserved was very important. Uh, palm oil was also important to the development of the steamship, which was a key imperial weapon that, in fact, allowed the troops to move into the inland Edo Kingdom uh, in the in the invasion I mentioned before. It allowed locomotives to make their way into the interior of continents to extract minerals. 
but also palm oil was developed into a series of weapons. Uh, one of them is that the glycerin from palm oil uh, almost certainly found its way into a lot of the dynamite that Europe produced. And of course, we know of the destructive power of dynamite from war and bombs, especially aerial bombardment that destroyed many cities. But it's also important to note that dynamite was used to blast open mountains, to dig deeper mines, um, and to open new frontiers of extraction, to build roads, um, often at the expense of the workers who are managing the dynamite. I mean, most famously in the building of the railways to the west of the United States and Canada, where largely but not exclusively Asian workers were sort of sacrificed to the dynamite to build railways. Um, especially through the Rockies. Um, and then later on, we see palm oil used as the key additive in the weapon, the sort of quintessential um, imperialist weapon that still bears its name, which is napalm. Uh, the napalm used in the Vietnam War actually didn't use palm oil, but the original napalm that was developed during the Second World War at Harvard University was a kind of combination of gasoline and, and palm oil. Um, and later, napalm would, of course, become this weapon that's synonymous with kind of a, a new age of empire, especially American empire, and the kind of um, post-colonial um, anti-insurgency warfare of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, so I want to make the link in my book to the weaponization of palm oil literally and also metaphorically. You mentioned sacrifice um, and one concept that comes up in this book that I think might um, really be important to underline is this argument that we live in a context where human beings are being sacrificed in the context of neoliberal racial capitalism. Um, you tie that to the history you're talking about, but can you can you sort of underline this aspect of the book? Because I found that very striking and very important. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, the book, as I mentioned, opens with this scene of the British invading the Edo Kingdom in order to seize their palm oil production capacity and also the labor of the people of that kingdom that could now be exploited for um, sort of global capitalist trade. But the, the nominal justification of that invasion that the British propounded in the press was that the um, royal family of Benin, it was, a, it was a monarchy, was conducting acts of human sacrifice, and the Benin people needed to be saved from their rulers, which, of course, listeners will remember all too well from many justifications for imperial warfare within our own lifetime, that, you know, people over there need to be saved from their rulers, uh, and therefore it justifies in Iraq, exactly, uh, and therefore that justifies a kind of imperial invasion uh, but really, their justification for the invasion is another oil, in that case, petroleum, in, in the Iraq case. So I sort of take up this question of human sacrifice and carry it through the whole book and keep returning to it. And of course, the irony is that in the British invasion of the Edo Kingdom, uh, the British were also an empire of human sacrifice. I mean, the workers within Europe who were sacrificed to the machines that were lubricated by palm oil, the entire kingdom and political entity of Benin and hundreds of thousands of lives that were lost within Africa, even after the abolition of slavery to extorted and um, exploited labor practices. Today, the millions of people who are caught up in the palm oil industry in the world's tropical regions, mostly in Malaysia and Indonesia, but also in Colombia, uh, Honduras, Brazil, uh, and West Africa still, 
whose lives are placed on the altar of transnational profit. And through that transition, I try and make the argument that, you know, there's no capitalism declares itself to be a secular system. There's no there's no God to whom these sacrifices are made other than prophets. And I try and theorize in the book the way that a system that proclaims itself to be completely rational, that proclaims itself to be uh, entirely instrumental, to have no belief system, in fact can still produce as an effect this massive worldwide system of human sacrifice. And I go through a number of sort of spaces around the world where if we pay attention to what's happening with palm oil, we see where the sacrifices are occurring. So, for example, I look a little bit at the American um, carceral state and the prison system, where incarcerated people are forced to eat diets that are very high in palm oil because it's extremely cheap, and also have begun to use ramen noodles, which are mostly made of palm oil other than enriched wheat flour, as a key currency. Or I look at the great migration uh, of Chinese people from the rural areas to the cities over the last sort of 30 years, and the way that the ramen noodle became a key commodity in their transit. Uh, so at a number of points, what I essentially argue in the book is that palm oil is our kind of key to see something that's hidden in plain sight, and that is that we live in an empire of human sacrifice just as gory and bloody as those we've, you know, that come from our sort of neoliberal fables about indigenous civilizations around the world who practice that right. What you're outlining, there's a clarity in this book about naming the violence at play. Um, when we think about the commodity production marketplace and the power of the market globally, that link to the profound violence you're talking about is often clouded. Mm -hmm. um, why is it important to sort of identify the collective participation mm -hmm. in the relationship to products and how that speaks to the systemic issues that you're talking about? Because mm -hmm. You're not just talking in this book, and you make that very um, clear, is you situate the reader mm. as related to this process, whether yeah, it's through yeah. consumption in food or products that are made in, in China. You talk about that and the mm. workers who are depending often on ramen noodles, not only, but it's, it's a key element to the diet. Um, so you can read this book and get a sense of your intimate connection to these issues. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Can you can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that the book is written in some ways as a response to the dominant discourse and rhetoric of environmental non-governmental organizations, ENGOs, who are active on the palm oil issue. And they do very important work, so it's a friendly critique. But the critique is that the narrative that they offer us about our connection to palm oil and our responsibility relative to it is fundamentally based on the idea of the individual consumer. So you or I as an individual consumer for whom 50% of our the products we buy at a supermarket are made of palm oil. And that includes you know, the foods we buy and eat, but also detergents, soaps, dyes. I mean, palm oil in trace amounts is found in a million different products. The approach from the ENGOs is to say, well, we as consumers need to take responsibility and buy different products or put pressure on companies or, you know, at best, ask our governments to uh, enact sort of laws and regulations. Of course, that's important. But I think what gets lost here is that, that the 
looking at palm oil seriously can give us so much more. It shows us that we are already a globally entangled and interdependent species. And palm oil is one way in which we're entangled and interdependent. Um, and I talk in the book about this as a process of metabolism. So you have the oil palm tree metabolizing sunlight and nutrients mm -hmm. uh, in the tropical zone, and that being then metabolized in an industrial process into this deodorized bleached uh, uniform in different substance. And that then being metabolized by human bodies like those workers in the factories in China. And then their energy that from that metabolism being put into the commodities we use every day. It's just one uh, itinerary or pathway through which we are enfolded in the same system. And what I really want from readers of this book and from myself and from us collectively is to think about how we are all implicated, not in a way that's about sort of like shame and feeling bad and feeling like things are hopeless, but to realize, you know, if we can make a world, if we can transform the world and transform ourselves so profoundly to create a whole world where we're all a little bit made of palm oil and we're reproducing a world made of palm oil, how could we put that collective creative power to other uses? That's the kind of hopeful philosophical question behind the book. Mm -hmm. The other the darker side of that, I would say, is that we are also all then enfolded or entangled or participating in a system of human sacrifice. And the one thing I would say about that is, you know, looking at the history of societies that have practiced human sacrifice, and many, many, many have all around the world, the vast majority of the time, neither the rulers nor the common people would call what they're doing human sacrifice. Or at, at, very, at the very limit, they would say, well, yes, we have to do this sacrifice, but, you know, it's a form of risk management. Uh, if we didn't sacrifice these people, and typically in these societies, the people who get sacrificed are low-status people or enslaved people or people who've already been dehumanized, this prisoners of war. Exactly. There would be a calamity. So, you know, if we went back to the kingdom of Benin or if we went to the Aztec kingdom, you know, which are well-known empire, I should say, um, societies that practiced human sacrifice, or the Druidic societies of uh, England, um, to, mm -hmm. to take that context as well. And we asked the people there, well, look, why do you do this? They would be like, look, we know it's horrible. We don't like it. But if we didn't do this, the gods that we believe in will punish us. My argument to the book is, how is that different from if we were to go to the Chicago School of Economics and ask them why so many people need to be sacrificed on the altar of palm oil so we can have a cheap fat and a cheap industrial additive? And they would say, look, I understand. It's terrible. We don't like that they're cutting down the rainforest. We don't like that they're basically paying people starvation wages or using new forms of essentially enslavement in the industry. But if we were to interfere with the market, our god, terrible calamities would happen. And this has been the neoliberal argument you know, since the 1970s, that if you, if you intervene with the market, if you contradict the kind of godlike dictates of the market, then some sort of cosmological calamity will befall you. The economy will collapse, you know, efficiency will break down, innovation will break down. But every society has had that justification for the horrible things that they do. So I think we as a global society need to take responsibility for that and transform the cosmology we live under. That's, um, I think a point to pick up on because one word you keep using throughout the book, which I found surprising was cosmology. Mm -hmm. And the context of this book is not where I would assume to be thinking about a cosmology or an interconnected system of life. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Yeah, so I'm just wondering if you could, maybe it does speak to a lot of the points you already outlined, but you talk about a cosmology, which in some ways links to this idea of collective responsibility. Um, so in this book, you are talking about this issue as interconnected, not as something, quote unquote, over there mm. or, or, or disconnected. So can, when you think about cosmology, maybe this, these topics are not usually, at least for me, what I would think of in relation to that word. Yeah. Well, maybe I'd, I'd respond by maybe bringing in two authors that were very influential. I mean, the one that would probably surprise no one coming from a kind of radical critique, critic of capitalism is, is Marx and Marxism. That, you know, even if we go back to the work of Karl Marx, um, he's always interested in the way that you can take, you know, the simplest of commodities, and he begins capital by looking at, like, tables and wool coats and stuff like this, um, yards of linen. And looking at the way that you can take what seems at first to be a, a simple thing that we all just live with, that we take for granted, and you can actually start pulling up the threads and unravel the whole system that produced it. I've often likened it to a holographic shard of something. Mm -hmm. So a hologram, when you create a hologram uh, and it shatters, like the, the plate that you're projecting it on, actually each fragment has the image of the whole on it. And so I think the same thing happens with any commodity under capitalism. I mean, one could write a book and people have on sugar, on salt, on canola oil or soy oil. And in any case, you could sort of unpack this thing to learn a huge amount about the system that produced it. I think that's true of capitalism. I think that's probably true of any system on some level. But capitalism especially, we go through a process that, you know, has been called fetishization, where we we sort of collectively forget where these things came from. And so once we start getting into this language of fetishization, we begin to start thinking about a cosmology. It's not just about the material thing, it's also about how we feel about the material thing, how we think about the material thing, what stories we tell ourselves about where things came from and what they mean, what their value is. And those to me have are connected to a much broader set of questions about how do we make sense of our world? And how do we make sense of forces that we can't fully understand? And that, to me, are the questions of cosmology. Um, because capital, capitalism as a system and the movements of capital are so huge and so complex and so um, interconnected, mm -hmm. it exceeds the capacity of any human mind. We have to use the imagination. And we have to use shared um, stories of the imagination. And to me, when you put all those stories together, what you begin to see, if you look at it right, is the cosmology. The second author I would point to here, uh, I think, is one that's be who's become increasingly important to many, many, many uh, critics recently, which is the Jamaican thinker Sylvia Winter, uh, who, you know, uh, coming out of years of um, anti-colonial struggle and, and activism, as well as her own really interesting uh, interdisciplinary forms of thinking, has developed really an amazing framework for thinking about what the challenge we face as humanity now is, which is to, in a certain sense, take full responsibility for the unique powers of our species, to think cosmologically, um, to think about the origin stories that we hold uh, and how they shape who we are and who we're becoming, and to recognize that now, sort of before us as a species, now that we can no longer avoid the fact that we're globally interconnected and globally communicating, we need to find a new cosmology 
that allows us to move away from the cosmology of sort of racial capitalism and understand our interconnectedness and practice our interconnectedness differently. Um, so that her, her thinking is very present uh, for me in the book, or at least my interpretation of her thinking. One thing that comes to mind is workers, and you link an anti-colonial reading of palm oil and its history to thinking about labor mm -hmm. and writing about labor. Uh, you talk in the book about Malaysia and Indonesia, where so much palm oil is produced. And you do mention very briefly, but it's very important, the mass, mass violence in Indonesia in, in the context of the repression of the uh, Marxist and leftist and other, mm. other radical movements trying to overturn the economic system there. Um, so can you just talk about sort of what you talked about Sylvia Winter and like the idea mm. of the interconnection um, when we talk today, 2023, about like thinking about uh, a critique of a global economy based on like workers mm -hmm. and sort of like that sort of Marxist reading, there's a tendency in shorthand to mm -hmm. sort of historicize that sort of mm -hmm. uh, language as something of the past. Yeah, but yeah. you're bringing that with many other elements into the present through the reading of palm oil. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let me start with the consumers of palm oil and move backwards to the people who produce it. One of the things I'm often asked when I've, you know, in the follow-up to publishing this book, when people at talks or in the media want to, you know, talk about it, is they'll say, like, well, what, what should consumers do? And I think it's, as I've already mentioned, I think that's really unfortunate because it, to think about ourselves and our agency in the world as just consumers is fundamentally to fall prey to... Mm -hmm the ideology of capitalism, to insist that our only power is our ability to buy. I mean, it's a terrible way of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. But I think on a more pragmatic level, like there's only a certain number of us consumers in the so-called global north who even have an option about what to do about palm oil. The vast majority of people in North America are workers whose labor is being drastically exploited such that they have no option except to buy the cheapened food and the cheap and household products made of palm oil. I mean, if you go and you talk to like working class people in the United States or in Canada and you tell them, well, you shouldn't be buying all these things with palm oil, they're going to say like, where am I going to get the money to buy more expensive stuff, yeah. right? Especially since palm oil is found in so many processed foods. Yeah. Um, so already we have the problem that a lot of the approaches to palm oil forget that people are workers and that beyond whatever they do every day in their work, they're also exploited and usually artificially impoverished. So if we want to have a solution to the palm oil, yeah. Uh, sorry, artificially impoverished. Just yeah, because we have because yeah. we have a lot of wealth in the world mm -hmm. and that's all going to a very small percentage of the population mm -hmm. who are mostly capitalists or people who benefit from capitalism. So it's not that they're they're poor. They've they've been artificially impoverished. They are having their their due from our society stolen from them so someone else can be rich. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So then when we begin with that position, maybe there's another way of then linking it to um, other workers around the world who, within the kind of dominant discourse of ENGOs, appear as these kind of poor, needy people somewhere else that need our charity. Uh, in the first place, I think one of the things that we can follow when we follow palm oil is the appearance of so-called surplus populations. So these are populations 
that are highly or hyper-exploitable by capital because they've been dispossessed of their land. They no longer have the means to produce for themselves. They've been usually forced into cities or at least forced to migrate to other areas. Um, and they depend on wages from capital, from capitalists. And yet, increasingly, because of the changes within capitalism, capitalism doesn't really have a need for them. So there's millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world, arguably billions of people around the world, who are in this state of surplus or near surplus populations. Mm -hmm. They depend on capitalism, but capitalism doesn't depend on them. And it allows for a situation of hyper-exploitation. So for instance, lots of workers who are dispossessed by environmental destruction, by dams, by mining, by ecological you know, plantations and stuff, um, they are forced to migrate and then depend on wages in order to get enough to eat and often are consuming palm oil. But this is also, to kind of wrap this point up, this is also where a lot of the palm oil industry workers come from, right? They're people who've been dispossessed of their land bases, often by palm oil plantations themselves or by mining or extraction. And now they are desperate enough for work that they undertake the incredibly exploitative, difficult labor of palm oil production on plantations in order so that Western consumers largely, but not exclusively, can have access to this incredibly cheapened commodity. This was a conversation with Max Haven on his book, Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire. We share a new edition every week on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays and CJLO 1690 a.m. also in GeoGeague, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m on CKUW Radio 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays. That's in the Treaty 1 territory of the Métis Nation. And on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. And finally on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, British Columbia on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. You can find Free City Radio through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just look us up. And our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Talk to you next week and take care.